Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. This week I'll be reviewing the Chancellor's autumn statement with particular reference to the likely impact of the windfall profits tax that's been extended to the renewable energy sector, discussing the market's reaction to the statement and a number of company results, and trailing an extract from a fascinating interview with the founders of Literacy Capital, ticker BOOK, book, an interesting and distinctive private equity investment trust that announced some impressive results this week. It's notable for dedicating just under 1% of its profits to fund a charity which, as its name suggests, exists to provide help to those who cannot read or write. A full-length version of this interview with Paul Pindar, the chairman of the trust and a very successful businessman before he moved into private equity, and his son Richard, the CEO, in which they comment on the autumn statement and the strengths and weaknesses of the private equity industry. Uh, That's accessible by subscribers on the Moneymakers website. In the autumn statement, Jeremy Hunt announced a well-trailed package of tax rises and spending cuts, reversing most of the dash for growth measures proposed by the short-lived and ill-fated Trust Administration. The tax changes included bringing more incomes into the highest income tax bracket, extending the freeze on annual income tax allowances, and reducing the annual capital gains and dividend allowances. Pensions and benefits will have a rise by 10.1% in line with inflation. The windfall profits tax on oil and gas companies will be extended to electricity generators, including those renewable energy investment trusts. They will be liable to pay an additional tax at the rate of 45% of their revenues above an average price of £75 per megawatt hour. The tax will run from 2023 to 2028. If the objective of all these measures was to calm the financial markets, they were largely successful, with minimal reaction from the bond and equity markets. Internationally, the most notable development was the weakness of oil prices and industrial metals, both traditionally seen as harbingers of economic slowdown. It appears that investors' worries are moving on from inflation to worries about the likely recession that the interest rate rises, which are designed to head off the inflation surge, are likely to bring about. Indeed, the Office of Budget Responsibility said this week that it thought the UK economy, for one, was already in a technical recession. The S&P 500, meanwhile, was broadly unchanged over the week, while bond yields in the United States remain inverted, with the shorter-dated government bonds yield rising a little bit and still comfortably above longer maturity issues. The pound finished the week at $1.19, largely ahead on the week. In the investment trust sector, there were some notable share price gains from the three biggest Chinese investment trusts, all up by more than 10%, and some smaller company trusts, while commercial property remained out of favour, dominating the list of fallers. On a more positive note, Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact announced that it has succeeded in raising $35 million through a placing. Not a huge result, but uh, nonetheless the first fundraising success of any size for a little while. So perhaps a harbinger of better news on that front ahead. While we also heard of plans for an IPO by a life sciences investment trust, to be named Conviction Life Sciences, which is looking to raise $100 million. In a fairly quiet week for results, we had announcements from Troy Income and Growth, Montanara European Smaller Companies, and Aberdeen Japan. All three of those are delivering returns a little way below their benchmarks for the relevant period. And more positive updates from uh, Biotech Growth and Syncona, 
the uh, Healthcare and Life Sciences Trust, though both of those somewhat flattered by the weakness of sterling against the dollar, which offset modest declines in net asset values. And meanwhile, Schroeder Real Estate Income became the latest commercial property trust to report results, uh, which fell into two halves, essentially. Second quarter of the year, showing a net asset value gain, most of which was then eliminated in the third quarter as bond yields started to rise. A full list of all the announcements made this week will, as always, be available to subscribers on the Moneymakers website. For a reaction to the autumn statement, I turn first to Emma Bird, who's Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, for her view on how the market had reacted. So my first question when I caught up with Emma Bird was, how has the autumn statement gone down in the markets? And in particular, uh, how has it affected the performance of investment trusts in the couple of days since we, we heard from Mr. Hunt? I think it's interesting, actually, the reaction being that there hasn't been much of one, definitely compared to the mini budget a couple of months ago, when we obviously saw dramatic sell-offs and rising gilt yields. In the, the day of the announcement, the FTSE All Share was flat and the investment trust sector share price total return was just minus 0.2%. So very minimal reactions in the markets as a whole. The primary focus, I think, in the investment trust sector was within the renewable energy sector because of the electricity generator levy there. So we saw some positive share price reactions there as the uncertainty overhang was removed. Yes, the old story about uh, the uncertainty is what can really destroy a share price. So at least you know what the enemy is, so to speak, in the shape of this windfall profit tax they've introduced. Uh, and I'll be talking later to your colleague, Cheyenne, about that. So yes, if the objective was to stabilise uh, the markets, then uh, so far at least the uh, reaction seems okay. As you said, the equity markets hardly moved and uh, bond yields are still pretty steady. In fact, and the pound is about where it was at 119. So a bit of a non-event in that sense, in market terms. But of course, we are entering a, a still a very difficult period when the OBR is forecasting a, a recession and a significant increase in debt and so on. So we're not out of the woods by any means. Would you agree? Yes, exactly. The forecast of a recession and the fact we're already technically in one is definitely going to have an impact on the UK market as a whole, particularly consumer-facing names. So we may see some underlying rotations within UK equity portfolios, for example, to try and move towards more defensive plays, perhaps. So if we just look at some of the movement there's been in the investment trust sector, I'm looking at sort of share price movements here. We've seen a bit of revival in the China investment trusts. China's obviously a very hot topic at the moment in the market. So the three uh, biggest China investment trusts all up by 10% or so this week in share price terms. Meanwhile, we've seen uh, a bit of a sell-off in the property sector, which is one you follow very closely. We had some results this week from a commercial property trust. Perhaps you could tell us about those and what you think about the sector overall at the moment. We've seen discounts widening again, I think. What's the outlook from here? Are we actually through the worst now, do you think? So Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust, they published their uh, interim results to the 30th of September. And as a lot of the interim results have been in the property sector over that period, it, it was a, a period of two halves with the portfolio seeing a valuation uplift in the quarter to 30th of June and then a quite severe derating or uh, devaluation in the quarter to 30th of September. 
which is in line with what we saw across the diversified UK commercial peer group. So I don't think there was any surprise there. The NAV per share was down 1.3% over the six months and managed to deliver a slightly positive total return over the six months, but highlighting that the second quarter of the period was much tougher in line with expectations due to the elevated guilt yield and rising interest rate environment. In terms of whether we're through the worst of it, I think in valuation terms, not quite. I wouldn't be surprised to see further valuation falls as at the 31st of December, as the valuations are based on transactional evidence. So I think we will see more evidence coming through of transactions at depressed valuations, particularly if there is some forced selling from gated open-ended funds. But in terms of share price movements, again, we have seen more selling off in the UK, whether we're through the worst of it, I think closer to the bottom of the share price moves than the NABs, perhaps, as people realise maybe things aren't quite as bad as they were pricing in. I guess now the worry is what's going to happen if we do, well, we are, as you say, technically in a recession already, and uh, that's going to last some time, according to the forecast, at least. What are the companies saying to you, though, when you talk to them? What what are their expectations? Are they sounding positive or are they just whistling to uh, remain cheerful? (laughs) I think they're cautiously optimistic is probably a way to describe it. They're definitely aware of the challenges that exist, particularly in terms of rising debt costs and interest rates affecting valuations. They're also aware that a recessionary environment could cause some pressure on underlying tenants. But so far, they all seem pretty comfortable with the the underlying tenant covenants, their ability to collect rent. They don't expect to be particularly affected, especially nowhere near as much as it was during the pandemic when properties were forced to close completely. And another thing that's often highlighted is the strength of balance sheets, particularly compared to the financial crisis when the property sector saw some, some major issues there as valuations fell and LTV covenants were either being breached or close to being breached. The fund managers are a lot more comfortable with their debt positions now and they think that they should be protected from breaching any LTV covenants on their debt. Do you think that we are going to see dividend cuts from the sector if things get bad? I don't think we'll see widespread uh, dividend cuts across the sector. Some of them still haven't increased their dividends back up to pre-pandemic rates yet. So I think they're aware that they don't want to cut again unless they really have to. The dividend cuts during the pandemic were due to severely reduced revenue because of difficulty in in collecting rent from tenants um, and some of them weren't covered pre-pandemic. So I think there has been a rebasing there. And as I said, I don't expect too much underlying tenant failures severely impacting revenue where you could see potential issues um, and potential dividend cuts is if funds face significantly increased debt costs affecting their earnings and and therefore dividend cover so potentially on on a specific fund by fund basis there could be some pressure on dividend cuts there but I don't expect across the board dividend cuts. So we've got uh, average discount around 24, 25%, I would say, something like that, according to the AIC numbers. And the average dividend yield is about 6%. What do you think is uh, going to happen uh, between these different sectors? Can you distinguish between them at all? 
Yeah, I think the industrial sector is an interesting one to highlight. It was the darling of commercial property over uh, recent years due to the structural growth drivers being onshoring and growth of e-commerce really driving demand for these properties. Speaking to the, the managers of the logistics and industrial focused funds, as well as the diversified managers that have exposure to this sector, it's interesting that they all do highlight that the occupational market does remain strong. So they are still seeing high demand for the space and the ability to capture rental growth from tenants. It's just that the capital values have been hit hard as they were the lowest yielding before the mini budget that they have been hit particularly hard by the kind of rebasing of of capital values in light of a higher interest rate environment. So these are trading on on pretty wide discounts as well, especially compared to their long-term averages. So I think that's an interesting area. I think there are still some concerns over the office sector. The consensus seems to be that there's definitely going to be a dispersion of returns between primary offices, high quality offices with good ESG credentials that firms want to occupy and more secondary offices that could become obsolete in a more hybrid working environment. Okay, well, let's quickly then move to another sector, which is of interest to those who are interested in income, uh, which is the UK equity income sector. We heard this week from Troy Income and Growth, which reported some, I think, relatively disappointing figures for its latest reporting period. What are your thoughts on Troy Income and Growth? Troy Income and Growth announced their annual results to the 30th of September, and they delivered a NAV total return of minus 9.9%, underperforming the FTSE All Share, which returned minus 4%. The managers attributed the underperformance to their allocation and, and bias to high quality companies in areas such as consumer staples and non bank financials, which were out of favour during the period, which is a trend I think that we've seen across many results in across different regions this year, that investing in kind of high quality companies and growth in general has been out of favour, uh, particularly compared to the FTSE All Share that's been boosted by kind of oil and stocks like that, where uh, toy income growth doesn't have any exposure. I think one of the, the positives to take from the results is that they've increased their dividend slightly in the final quarter of the year. So it's increased 2% um, and the board have stated their intention to at least maintain this quarterly rate for the next financial year using capital reserves if necessary. So using the investment trust structure there and it has a zero discount control policy. So it brought back £28 million worth of shares over the the latest financial year and managed to maintain its discount in in low single digits during a difficult period. Yes, they've had to do a lot of buybacks to protect the discount. And of course, they took a decision, what, uh, two or three years ago to reduce their dividend because they thought it was unsustainable at the previous levels. And they thought that was a general issue for the UK equity income sector. But uh, it so far has yet to work out that well for them. Their lack of exposure to energy has uh, clearly been a problem this year when that's been the only sector that's really delivered strong positive gains. It's a very competitive sector, the equity income sector. They're obviously out of favour. What do they have to do to get back into investors' uh, better books, if I can put it that way? I think continuing dividend growth 
if possible, is the main way to get back on the radar of companies, uh, um, of investors, sorry. I think their zero discount control policy is a differentiator. The fund aims to be defensive um, in terms of its underlying holdings. So the zero discount policy kind of plays along with that to reduce share price volatility for investors. But on the other hand, as you noted, that they did buy back a lot of shares as part of that in the last financial year. So I think they have to be careful that that doesn't result in them becoming too small to um, be on the radar of, of investors and yeah, shrink too far. Let's move to a quite different sector then. Let's talk about the uh, biotech and healthcare sector. And we've heard this week from Biotech Growth Trust. Tell us about what they had to report this week and uh, and what you think about them. So Biotech Growth Trust published uh, its interim results for the six months to 30th of September. And in contrast to most other sectors that we've seen report this year, they delivered positive performance and an outperformance of their benchmark as well. So they delivered a NAV total return of 9.6% versus the NASDAQ Biotechnology Index, which was up 6.8%. And its share price total return was slightly higher at 10.7% as the discount narrowed slightly. This fund also has a discount control mechanism aiming to limit the discount to 6%, and it, it brought back some shares during the period as well. And the managers noted that the biotech sector as a whole and and the fund in particular benefited in the period from increased levels of M&A and an improved regulatory and political backdrop in the US, which has, I think, been a quite a bit of an overhang for the sector for a number of years. And they, they noted that their outperformance of the benchmark was helped by gearing um, as well as their exposure to emerging biotech positions, so more sm- smaller cap, earlier stage biotech companies. Conversely, they did to highlight their Chinese biotech exposure, which has been an interesting area of differentiation for them over recent years. And they've got 10% of their portfolio in China, but they did note that they will not be investing any further at the moment due to the, the difficult macroeconomic and, and particularly regulatory environment. So it's interesting that they highlighted that. So why do you think the share price has been, when I say they've had a, a tough time, I mean in terms of share price terms, was it just simply a case that the share price got overheated, if you like, during the pandemic and when uh, obviously biotech was suddenly became very, very popular on the strength of vaccines and other developments? But since then, the shares have fallen you know, quite a long way or quite a substantial way, despite the discount control policies. So do you think this is uh, something that at some point will find some buyers out there? I think there's definitely an element of of the effect of the general market rotation away from growth this year and biotech in particular, as you said, after seeing such strong gains and positive investor sentiment during the pandemic. So I think that it is at least partially attributable to a general market rotation rather than anything that biotech growth was doing wrong in particular. I think the fact that it's it's delivered strong results recently should help prove to investors that it is still doing what it sets out to do um, and, and can still achieve positive returns. But I think for it to be re-rated back to a potentially a premium rating, there needs to be a reversal in investor sentiment in general towards higher growth and, and biotech assets, which is unlikely in the short term or medium term in, in a rising interest rate environment. 
Yes, so it's mainly but in, in small caps and it doesn't pay a dividend. So it hasn't got the characteristics that people like, uh, particularly. And uh, I guess you can uh, see that in the relative performance of something like International Biotech Trust, which does pay a dividend and hasn't performed as badly in the last recent period. We've also heard this week from Syncona, which is another interesting trust in this particular sector. Tell us what they had to say and how that compared to what we heard from Biotech Growth. Syncona also published interim results to 30th September, so same period. Their NAV total return was plus 4.3%. And the life science portfolio, because um, it also has a uh, cash uh, liquid investments portfolio, but the life science portfolio delivered a 3.9% return, which they noted was driven by a positive impact of foreign exchange across both the life science pool and, and the capital pool, but that there was a negative impact from a decline in the share price of the listed holdings within the life science portfolio. I think the the key thing to note from the results was that they outlined their growth plans for the next 10 years and they stated their ambition to grow organically to grow net assets to £5 billion over the next 10 years and really aiming to increase the rate of the new companies that that they found and help to expand these companies and and build them from the ground up. They're also aiming to deliver an expanded portfolio of 20 to 25 companies and they're helping to do this by increasing their team. They've made some management changes and they're building up an advisory function to support the management of the underlying portfolio companies. So they're definitely looking to the future and have ambitious targets. Yes, indeed. So five billion target would be uh, getting on for three and a half times as big as they are today. And I guess those of you who can do the old rule of 72 could work out that represents a compound rate of return of somewhere in the region of, I think, 20, 25%, something like that per annum. That's a pretty big target for uh, returns. It has a good pedigree, this uh, particular trust. And uh, it's it's quite a significant size as well. Yes, it's got total assets of 1.3 billion. So it's the second biggest in the biotech and healthcare peer group. Finally, let's talk about another interesting trust that reported this week, Seraphim Space Investment Trust. This is one of the newcomers, relative newcomers to the investment trust sector. It got a lot of attention when it arrived because of its slightly unusual nature. It doesn't invest directly in space exploration uh, so much as in other things to do with what goes on in space, including you know monitoring climate change and, and things like that. Invest in early stage companies involved in this interesting, potentially exciting area. But it, too, trades at a a very big discount. It's on a 50% discount or so, I think. So I think they're quite keen to change that. What do they have to say in their uh, latest results? So they published a quarterly update for the three months to uh, 30th of September. The NAV per share was up 4.6% to 105p at 30th of September, and it's flat year to date. Their overall portfolio valuation increased by 11% to 207 million, which was driven by new investments and some follow-on investments, um, increasing the size of the portfolio, as well as quite strong foreign exchange gains from the weakness of sterling. Um, However, this was offset by a £1.7 million underlying valuation reduction. So uh, the underlying companies did see valuation falls despite the NAV per share uh, increasing over the period. As you mentioned, it's on a 50% discount, which is not 
that out of line um, with its growth capital peers. Again, I think this sector's just really been hit by the reversal in market leadership away from growth names in a rising interest rate environment. But it is it's a definitely an interesting area. Seraphim space is unique within the investment trust universe um, in terms of offering exposure to this uh, sector. And the managers noted in, in the latest results that deal flow and investment activity has remained strong, reflective of the current trends within the broader space sector. Yes, they gave an interesting presentation this week, which I happened to listen into, where they were trying hard to explain why they should not be lumped into the same category as the other growth capital trusts like uh, Shehalian and uh, Chrysalis. They gave their reasons, which was that they're an even earlier stage, if you like, and uh, venture capital they, they're suggesting is doing actually slightly better. And uh, they also provided a lot more information about their resilience to the way that they invest. They have a lot of preference shares, which have uh, built-in protection against further downsides in NAV reporting by the uh, portfolio company. But it's a fascinating little trust, and uh, we hope it all survives. But it has the disadvantage also, I think, of being relatively new. It normally takes uh, two or three years to uh, establish for investors to look at these things with a less critical eye, shall we say. In terms of just looking ahead now, Emma, is there a chance you might get an end-of-year rally? A lot of people have been talking about that, if the markets have stabilised. Slightly concerning, though, this week to see the uh, the price of oil fall pretty sharply. Copper is also down, which are normally traditional indicators of slowing economic growth. And there's no let up in interest rate rises. So we have seen a partial recovery from uh, the lows in kind of early October. Over the recent weeks, we have seen some rebound across the UK market and in investment trusts, including a re-rating of, or a tightening of discounts. I think the autumn statement announced this week hopefully should again clear some uncertainty and pave the way for a re-rating of particular subsectors that we're seeing overhangs. Um, so we could, we could see a rally into the end of the year if that helps to allay some uncertainty in the market. But on the other hand, I guess it could also be offset by the fears of recession that were, were confirmed as well. Next, I move on to speak to Emma's colleague, Cheyenne Ratnasingham, who covers the infrastructure and renewable energy sector at Winterfloods for his assessment of the Chancellor's windfall profits tax. I started by asking him to explain exactly what the Treasury was proposing. Simply what the Chancellor has announced is a 45% levy on the profits generated by the, the renewable energy sector. So this 45% levy will apply above a threshold of £75 per megawatt hour. There is a small £10 million allowance that the government is offering, but this is very minimal, essentially. The levy also only applies to those assets that do not have rocks or contract for different revenue streams, and it's essentially based on their merchant revenue portion of their portfolio. So just to be clear, the rock scheme was one that was introduced when the government was trying to encourage renewable energy investment, and it effectively came to sort of guaranteed a minimum return from uh, an investment in renewable energy. Is that right? And that's going to be taken into account when it comes to assessing uh, how much they have to pay on this levy. 
That is correct. Essentially, you know, the government are very cognizant of sending the correct signals to the market. They do not want to introduce regulatory risk for supporting uh, new asset classes in the future. So they're essentially protecting those asset classes or those investors who initially came into the market and supported the growth of the renewable energy generators. And you sort of bearing in mind those early adopters would have experienced higher fixed costs, higher unitized costs for, for delivering that energy. So it, it seems appropriate that those, those um, have been uh, carved out essentially. Okay, and this levy will be introduced when and uh, how long will it last for? So the levy will be introduced from the 1st of January and it will go all the way to 2028. So this is quite different to to our uh, European counterparts who have decided to introduce their uh, price cap until 2024, essentially. So they've gone for a shorter thing that actually just limits how much money you can make out of renewable energy, electricity production. Uh, but of course, that, that might have an in, uh, uh, a disincentive on uh, further investment, whereas the, the UK scheme presumably does make some allowance for future investment. Can you set off future investment costs against this? There is no incentives to reinvest in the sector, which is in contrast to the energy levy that was introduced back in May. But essentially why this policy or this levy is more flexible than the European peers is it's the 75 megawatt per hour threshold is on a blended cost rather than every single contract that has a strike price above 75 pound per megawatt is going to be impacted by the levy. So essentially, you know, you might have some contracts above 75 pounds per megawatt hour and some uh, that are below, but it's mostly about the blended price. So when will we see the results of this? I mean, will it be the next time that a renewable energy trust reports an NAV, the fact that there's now going to be this uh, windfall tax, will that be reflected in the next NAVs? Is that what we should expect? We should expect them when they start reporting on their Q4 numbers to start baking those into this valuation. You should bear in mind when these funds secure contracts, they tend to be one to three years in advance. So we're currently going to 2022. So if we make a very crude assumption that those contracts will roll off by 2024 versus the asset life of 15, 20, 25 years, in the grand scheme of things, the sensitivity to NAV is not as large as one might expect. And we also know going forward, based on the forward prices, that the price per megawatt hour is, is going to significantly come down from the highs that we, we're experiencing today. Yes, because uh, the prices have come down, and particularly sharply this week, in fact, uh, there's been a big decline, uh, certainly in the oil price anyway, less so in, in gas. Let's uh, talk about how the markets reacted to this. They basically, they kind of reacted with a bit of a shrug. Is that right? Yeah, I think generally there was positivity towards the news. And I think it was most important people were just happy with clarity. So you did see investors coming back into the market yesterday, buying up some of those names, but the moves weren't very large. And if you actually look, even though it was a relatively positive day across the board, if you actually look on a week-to-day basis, most of the trusts are still uh, in negative territory. But on a year-to-date basis, they're still in positive territory. Essentially what's happened in the last two, three months, they've sold off in anticipation of whatever kind of regime was going to be introduced. That was discounted, if you like. And now that the news has come out and there's some clarity about it, then uh, basically the market sort of got it about right. Is that what you're suggesting in terms of anticipating what happened? I agree completely. So I think going into the the statement, people took a pause from the sector and we saw negative sentiment. And I think investors now are reassessing the sort of impact. And now that we have sort of a a future guidance on pricing of of energy, I think investors also need to take a a pause and sort of understand what is the appropriate valuation multiple to apply for these trusts. Because, you know, one could argue that the, the double digit premiums that they were experiencing previously are, are not going to continue in the future. And, you know, the market needs to sort of come to an understanding of where an appropriate multiple is for the, for the funds. 
So that's something that uh, will be worked out over the course of the next few weeks, one imagines. In terms of the share price reaction and what people have been expecting, can we mention some of the differences in the names and how they've been affected in share price performance, for example, since the mini budget? I mean, some have sold off rather more than others. So, for example, the Renewables Infrastructure Group has sold off quite sharply uh, since the mini budget, probably one of the worst affected. Some of the solar funds as well, they were being affected more in anticipation. What can you say about the way that the sector has, has performed, the names within that sector? I think those names which have higher subsidized revenues towards the rocks and the CFD contracts tend to perform better because obviously they, they are being carved out. Where the policy that was discussed yesterday by the Chancellor didn't go as far enough is there was no clarity on the freedom tariff scheme, which some of these assets benefit from. So those assets, you know, who have freedom tariff contracts have, have tended not to do as well. We saw reasonable uptick in names such as UK Wind, Bluefield Solar Income, which have high proportion to, to rock and CFD assets. And both UK Wind and, and Bluefield Solar have, have recently purchased rock and CFD assets in, in their latest investment rounds. I guess what we can conclude then is that, uh, for the moment at least, we know where we stand. And as you say, the uh, forward returns obviously will come down a little bit to some extent. Do you think we uh, are going to get back to a regime where these things consistently trade at premiums, which will have implications for future funding, of course? Do you think that's a reasonable prospect to get back to trading around par at, at some point once the market's fully absorbed all this? I think the trust should definitely trade at least around par, if not a, a, a small premium, because we should consider you know they are giving real returns and, and a real income profile to investors. I think where investors should pay attention is to the stated dividend cover that these funds will be giving guidance on going forward. Some funds would have given dividend cover based on cash flow driven by the underlying SPVs or the structures that hold these assets, which do not actually pay corporation tax or will, or will not be subject to the levy. The levy will be at the holding company level. So that's what pays out the dividend. So it'd be interesting to see how the dividend cover moves and how the market is going to react to that, essentially. Just going back to the previous question, one of the companies that had negative reactions, it was Horsite Solar. And the unfortunate timing of announcing their Q3 NAV within a week of the autumn statement, and they adopted higher Q3 curves, though have applied larger discounts to the forecast price. However, based on the levy threshold of 75 megawatts, you know, those curves but net of discounts can't absorb the new threshold. So we, we're going to hear announcements from the likes of um, Jay Len and Next Energy Solar, who are going to be reporting um, towards the end of the month. So I think the market should listen carefully to what they have to say uh, to the impacts of the valuations that, that they're seeing, essentially. So looking forward, as you just said, one of the key things to look at will be not just the yield, but at the level of dividend cover, to the extent that we can work that out at the top level anyway. Most of them are on yields between uh, 5 and 7%, that -hmm. sort of level. Uh, Obviously, bond yields have risen a little bit. That makes those uh, a little bit less attractive as well. How important is the relative importance of future prices and uh, future uh, interest rates to where these uh, trusts will be trading? So these trusts are are clearly quite sensitive to bond yields, and that's why we've seen a, a large repricing in these funds in the last a uh, few months in the wake of um, yields shooting up. Investors have, tef- have have definitely flocked to this sector because the relative yield pickup you've had over yields on corporate bonds but, and, and, and gilts alike. So I think investors will be very much focused uh, on the relative yield and the relative spread. So I think this will create not pressure, but it will, it will help to tame the sort of valuation multiples these funds have been trading at. 
Um, we should also bear in mind, you know, with NAV's announcements coming in uh, for Q4, whilst the impact of the levy will, will impact the DCF and, and so forth, you'll have other valuation assumption changes um, affecting the overall NAV, essentially. So the impact might not be as severe as some investors are anticipating. Okay, so the final point really is this is not a death sentence for in any way for the renewable energy infrastructure sector. In fact, you could take it as a, as a mild sort of positive in the sense that at least we know where we're going now. I guess to be fair also, it's fair to make the point that you made earlier, which is that the import costs of most of these electricity generators are, are fixed. So they generally have been windfall profits in the sense that they haven't done anything to, to earn that extra revenue. It's been driven by the change in the external market. That's right. If I could say one final thing is um, we should give credit to the, the funds in the sector. It's quite a mature sector, uh, relatively speaking. You know, and we've seen the mandates beginning to change within the sector, looking to take on more construction and development risk where there can be more opportunity for capital growth. So, you know, these trusts are, are moving away from the typical uh, wearing the hat of a yield code to more of a total return strategy. So, you know, returns are, are not necessarily going to you know fall off the cliff based on this levy and the managers will will obviously be working hard to retain the sort of attractive yields the sector has been has been offering today. Still on the subject of the autumn statement, I turn next to Paul Pindar, the founder and chairman of Literacy Capital, uh, which is an interesting and distinctive private equity investment trust that in addition to uh, pursuing profit in a healthy capitalist way, donates uh, 0.9% of its NAV each year to support literacy charities. Uh, the trust, which has a market capitalization of $220 million, and whose shares, in contrast to most of its private equity peers, still trade around par, has performed strongly since listing last year, with the share price having more than doubled from 160p at launch to 369p today, making it the fifth best performer in the whole investment trust sector over the past 12 months. Before founding Literacy Capital with his son and co-founder Richard in 2017, uh, Mr. Pinder is best known for having run the outsourcing company Capita for 17 years, taking its market value from around a million when it floated on the old unlisted securities market in 1989 to more than uh, a billion when it f- he retired in 2014. So uh, quite an extraordinary uh, successful track record. He previously worked for 3i and his forthright views on the good and bad things about private equity uh, are well worth listening to. Uh, There's not room to include all that in this week's podcast. So I've added the whole 40-minute conversation with Paul and his son to the Moneymaker Circle this week. Uh, uh, We talk at length about the trust, its history, and the reasons for its strong performance, as well as the things that private equity does well and those uh, it does not. In this uh, short extract, I asked him what he made of the autumn statement and the recent political turmoil in the UK. What do you make of the rather uh, depressing events of the last uh, two or three months? I guess my starting point is if you look at where we are as a country economically at the moment, we're slightly caught between a rock and a hard place. And so if you look at the options that Jeremy Hunt had available to him this week with his statement, they were reasonably limited. And the first objective that he has is to restore confidence in the financial markets and not only in terms of creating stability, but also the direct consequence of which is we want to try and keep interest rates down because at the moment, the cost of interest as a proportion of our total public expenditure is too high. And so I think there's kind of a sense where he probably did as much as he could do at that period, because I think 
going for a considerable amount of fiscal tightening just when you are about to go into a recession is probably a dangerous thing to do. And if you look at the measures that have been taken, both in terms of increasing taxation and reducing government expenditure, a lot of them don't actually kick in in a meaningful way for at least a couple of years or so. So although the statement was received in a positive way by the markets, the reality is over the next 24 months, I'm not sure we're actually doing very much. And I guess the wider comment that I would make, and I kind of make this in my kind of previous life within Capita, I do think at some point we need to show more courage in the way that we look at the way public services are delivered, because continuing to pile more and more money into something and assuming that an operation becomes better or more efficient or delivers better outcome is generally not a realistic expectation. And so, you know, to give you one very simple illustration... If you look at the NHS today, compared with the NHS before the COVID pandemic hit us, today we're investing more money and we have more people in it and we're treating less patients than we were pre-COVID. And so someone has to look at that equation and say something is fundamentally wrong here in the organisational structure of the NHS and in the management of the NHS that we're not driving out greater productivity and Personally, I think that is an area right across government departments where there need to be a lot more focus. And if you look at Jeremy Hunt's statement, I think broadly speaking, 40% of the gap was going to be bridged through tax increases and 60% of the gap was going to be created by savings in the public sector. I think there is considerable scope for further savings to be delivered if somebody wants to approach it in a measured and disciplined way. Paul, you will have lived through several recessions in your time. This is the first one which I think has been kind of officially (laughs) forecast by the Bank of England, somewhat unusual (laughs) development. Normally, you try not to sort of talk your way into recession, but that seems to be a different policy now because of, no doubt, concerns about how high interest rates would go. What do you think is going to happen to your portfolio in the current circumstances? If we do get a recession, or if we are in one already, as the Chancellor thinks, what impact will it have on the kind of companies that you are investing in? And what might you need to do to help them get through it? Obviously, Jonathan, it's hard to predict the future. But again, just to kind of give you a couple of data points. The first one is if you look at the top 10 investments in our portfolio, only three of them happen to be consumer facing. So the rest of them are essentially B2B businesses. Secondly, As Richard has indicated, we are fortunate that we get a lot of very detailed data from our businesses on a monthly basis. And so we're able to monitor progress and we also will get an early warning if those businesses do start to hit headwinds. I would say to you that as of today, we are feeling reasonably fortunate because none of our top 10 investments are showing signs of pressure. And so, as you rightly say, I've been around for a while now, and therefore we're not complacent enough to believe that they won't show some signs of pressure. But what I would also say is if there are issues where we start to hit some headwinds, you know, in the 25 years that I did in Capita, not everything was a tailwind the whole time. And therefore you learn reasonably quickly as to what are the levers that you can pull if things do get more tricky and to make sure that we try and keep those portfolio companies in the most healthy condition that we can. We also do use some self-help. And so again, I will do some compare and contrast here with the private equity industry. The PE industry, if you look across it and you look across the various segments that they operate in, they will typically employ leverage that could be anything from three or four times all the way up to eight to 10 times. 
And one of the downsides of high leverage is it reduces management's flexibility to act because not least they're often worried about whether they're going to breach covenants or not. If you look at the portfolio that we have, our leverage level across the portfolio is just fractionally in excess of one times. And so we do that quite consciously because one is we don't want to build in undue risk into the portfolio. And two, we want to give the managers the opportunity to focus on looking outwards and looking towards growing the business rather than worrying about repaying a bank. And final comment is if you look at the three businesses that we do have in the portfolio today, which are consumer facing, one of them is involved in producing manufacturing high-end dog food. Uh, A second one, is involved in children's leisure activities. And the third one is involved in children's educational tours. And again, having been around the block a little bit, if you look at those areas that are going to get hit in a discretionary downturn, which is typically big ticket household items, so bedding, furniture, and those kind of things, those are probably not businesses that you would want to be invested in right now. But two of the most resilient sectors that you can have in that kind of environment is children and animals. And we have been very fortunate that of the three businesses that we do have in the portfolio, they happen to be children and animals. We have one final thing which you may or may not have the time to include in your podcast. We are also very committed to developing Bookmark and the services we provide. And right now we are teaching thousands of children around the country. And the greatest constraint that we have on growth of helping more children is that we need more reading volunteers. And reading volunteers give up 30 minutes a week, twice a week, and they can either do it online or they can attend schools in person. So if any of your myriad of well-educated listeners to your podcast feel that they would like to give some time back to help children typically aged between five and eight, I would ask them to go onto the bookmark reading website and see if they would like to sign up as a volunteer because any help would be hugely appreciated. That brings us to the end of this week's Investment Trust podcast. Rather unusually, perhaps we're ending with a an appeal for charitable activity on behalf of our listeners, but I think it's a worthy cause and I'm happy to include that on this occasion. Uh, next week, we will be starting a new rota of regular contributors to the weekly podcast. Uh, some of them you'll know already from previous uh, episodes. I think we're going to have a six to eight week uh, regular cycle of uh, co-hosts changing from one week to the next, but in every case, reviewing what's been happening in the investment trust sector in the previous seven days. Lots of interesting times ahead. We've seemed to have survived the autumn statement, if I can put it that way so far, without too much trouble. But there's obviously going to be plenty of difficulties for the government and the Bank of England and policymakers around the world to overcome in the next few weeks and months. So do please keep listening. Thanks again for your support. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.